Let's turn again to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Life is full of decisions. Some decisions are easy. Should I steal that Ferrari that's sitting outside Badger Court? It looks a very nice car. Easy. Not because it's probably got a tracking device on it, but because the Eighth Commandment simply tells me, you shall not steal. But an awful lot of decisions in life aren't like that. They're so much more difficult. No commandment in the Bible covers them. I can't go to the Ten Commandments and get an answer on them. Or maybe it's just hard to see how they fit with God's commands. Hard to work out. And we're in part of 1 Corinthians that's helping us with those difficult decisions where Christians disagree. Chapters 8, 9 and 10 are about a difficult decision going on in Corinth, which the Christians disagreed over. Should they eat meat dedicated to idols? Now, that seems really odd to us. Isn't that a no-brainer? We think, well, it wasn't as easy. They were in a society full of idolatry. And you couldn't go on a social occasion without it involving, probably, the restaurant attached to the idol temple. Or you couldn't buy meat in the marketplace without, and be confident it hadn't been dedicated to an idol before it was being sold. What were you to do? Chapters 8 to 10 answer the issue. Now, we don't, most of us, face directly that issue. Although, actually, it is facing more and more Christians in our society with the mix of cultures going on. But we face many other difficult decisions where these same principles may help us. Here's how chapters 8 to 10 work. We have a diagram on the screen. I've got a diagram, but I have to give credit, it's not me that made this up. It comes from a chap called Vaughan Roberts, who leads an Anglican church in Oxford. Christian decision-making, he said, goes like this. And this comes from 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. Does the Bible allow it? No. Simple. Don't do it. Yes. Well, then you've got another question to ask. Does my conscience allow it? No. Well, don't do it. Even if the Bible allows it, if your conscience is against it, don't go against your conscience. But if the Bible allows it and my conscience allows it, you've still got some questions to ask. What is the effect on other Christians? That was the subject of chapter 8, which we looked at a couple of, well, about a month ago, actually. Secondly, though, what is the effect on non-Christians? That's the question chapter 9 asks. And then we should ask, what is the effect on my spiritual life? That's the question chapter 10 answers. So do you see we've got a helpful little flowchart for Christian decision-making, by the way, helpful, but it doesn't make everything easy. These are difficult questions to answer. And it also shows you what's going on in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. Chapter 8 was about what's the effect on other Christians. Chapter 9, what's the effect on non-Christians. Chapter 10, what's the effect on my spiritual health. Okay, thank you, Phil. Now, today we're in chapter 9. I wonder, have you ever had a double-barreled shotgun aimed at you? I hope not. Chapter 9, though, is a double-barreled shotgun being aimed at you. Paul wants the Corinthians to make right decisions, and for that, he's firing two shots at once at them. And the two shots he's firing at once in chapter 9 are, first of all, his example. 
He's told them to do something difficult in chapter 8, and they're going to be resistant. So in chapter 9, he says, well, look, I do this myself. Here's my example. But he has another problem. You see, the Corinthians don't think he's a decent apostle. Is he a true apostle at all? And so in chapter 9, he's asserting his, that he is a real apostle, and they ought to listen to him. You see the double-barreled shotgun, two shots at once. His example, now that's obvious the relevance to us, let's follow his example, his apostolic authority. The relevance of that is not as obvious to us, because it's not exactly a hot issue in the UK in 2022, was Paul an apostle? But God has put this in the Bible, and that means it's relevant for the church down through history, because there are lessons in chapter 9 for the relationship between a church and its leaders. So, let's go through chapter 9 in three sections. It's a big chapter. I'm going to try to cover it all so we get to see how it all fits together. That means there are many details I won't cover. So if you want to ask me, for example, about oxes treading out grain in verse 9, you'll have to ask me afterwards, because I'm not commenting on it now. But please do ask your questions afterwards. I'm going to be doing this at some speed this evening. Going through all of chapter 9, so we have the gospel. That is concern for unbelievers driving our choices and decisions. That's the aim this evening, that we have the gospel, that we have concern for unbelievers drive our choices and our decisions. First section is the biggest, verses 1 to 18. Verses 1 to 18, give up your rights if they get in the way of the gospel. That's what this is about. Give up your rights if they get in the way of the gospel. Now, let's get the big point of verses 1 to 18. The Corinthians have said, back in chapter 8, we've got freedom to eat meat offered to idols. We're free. We're free to do whatever we want. And Paul says, chapter 9, verse 1, well, am I not free? I'm a free man too. Not only that, I've got the status of an apostle. Chapter 9, verse 1, am I not an apostle? Here's the evidence, verse 1, I've seen Jesus and I've brought people to Christ, even you Corinthians. So even if the people over the sea don't think of me as an apostle, surely you should because I brought you to Christ. But was he an apostle? The Corinthians didn't think much of Paul. (laughs) They said, he can write an impressive letter But he's not a very impressive speaker. It seems he's got dodgy eyes and he can't, he doesn't have those techniques of public speaking that we expect. (laughs) He can sound good in a letter, but when you see him and listen to him, he's nothing special. He even doesn't make the Corinthians pay them. Now fancy that. If you want Tony Blair to come and speak at your event, do you know how much it might cost you? up to $10,000 a minute. Well, at least he went and spoke at an event in the Philippines and that was what it amounted to, $10,000 a minute for him to speak there. But this, someone who travels to Corinth and speaks for free, he can't be much good, can he? You don't get anything decent for nothing. And so Paul explains himself in verse 3 to 18. Verses 3 to 6, I'm going to shoot through these verses really quickly. Verses 3 to 6, he's saying, he has the right to a normal family life 
and to have it supported. That is paid for by the church. When he says, verse 4, don't we have, we as him and Barnabas, by the way, don't we have the right to food and drink? You might think, what's he talking about? Of course you have. He's talking about he has the right to have this paid for by the church, to be supported by them. And he gives arguments for why he has the right to be supported. He gives arguments for this from normal life, verse 7. You don't expect a soldier to go to war and pay for it himself. You pay him. He gives arguments from the Old Testament scripture. That's verses 8 to 10. He gives arguments from common sense. That's in verse 11. I've sown a harvest among you. Isn't it just common sense that I should expect something back? And he gives an argument from the example of temple workers. That's verse 13. Paul goes to town. I've not gone into the details there. But you can see there's quite a few verses and quite a lot of arguments. He goes to town on establishing being paid was his right. But he purposely didn't use that right. Verse 12. Verse 12. But we did not use this right. Why didn't he use this right? If he's gone to town on saying, this is my right, and I can give you a whole load of reasons why it's quite right for you to pay me. Why didn't he take any pay? Verse 12 again. On the contrary, we, Paul and Barnabas, put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. He didn't want anything to hinder the gospel. That word hinder is an interesting word. It comes from a military word for digging holes in the road in the way of an army to stop an army advancing. You've got an army to come, coming and attacking you? Dig holes in the road to make it more difficult for them to come and attack you. And Paul says, I, I was determined to avoid anything that would dig a hole in the road in the way of the gospel. There was someone, someone was listening to an online preacher, and I, I heard that they were listening to this online preacher. I'd never heard about him. I thought, I'll look him up. I looked him up, and the very first thing that I discovered, according to Google, was he'd made millions of dollars. And he'd made it out of preaching. And he's selling Christian books, and his payment by the church. And I didn't know anything else about him, but I was already starting to think, dodgy. Here's a dodgy preacher. If anyone's made a lot of money out of preaching, that raises suspicions. And Paul wanted to avoid any suspicion making a hole in the road in the way of the gospel. He didn't want to look like someone whose motive was money. Well, Apostle Paul, what is your motive? Verse 16. Verse 16. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He's got this inner compulsion. He must do this. And verse 17, he says, it's a trust committed to him by the Lord Jesus. This wasn't voluntary. Paul didn't preach voluntarily. He didn't preach just when it suited him. Jesus had told him, and so he must. Now, the argument gets a bit complicated in verse 17 and 18, but I'm not going to go over it. You can ask me afterwards. The point here is, it's a burning drive within him. 
He must get the good news of Jesus to people. He cannot stop speaking for the honour of Jesus and he's not going to let suspicion that he's doing it for money get in the way. Now, I've just quickly given the main point of verses 1 to 18. Here's the main point. Paul establishes he has a right to be paid and then he says, but I gave up that right because I don't want anything to get in the way of the gospel. And he's put it here, and God has put it here, in his word, to be an example when we are making choices and decisions. I hope you see how it's very relevant to the Corinthians. Because some of them were saying, it's my right to go and eat that meat offered to idols. It's my right to eat a decent slab of steak. He's saying, yeah, I don't deny that. But give up your rights when they get in the way of the gospel. Give up your rights. If exercising them might dig a hole in the road that hinders the gospel, that casts suspicions in people's minds about you. Here's an example I've made up for us. Gary likes big cars. I've just completely made up this person. Gary likes big cars. He'd love to drive a massive Ford Bronco. He's got the money to do it. And even these days, the money to to pay for the petrol. (laughs) But he works with colleagues who are really environmentally conscious. And they think turning up to work in a massive car like that, well, that's wicked. That's destroying the environment. That is socially irresponsible. They think that's dreadful. Gary thinks they're talking nonsense. He just thinks that's ridiculous. It's his right to drive a Ford Bronco. What a nice, big American car. And it feels powerful and it looks good. And he'd like to argue with them that Extinction Rebellion are a load of nonsense-speaking killjoys. But all of that would be putting a hole in the road in the way of the gospel. Because they think, you call yourself a Christian and you're destroying this world you said that God made. So Gary won't buy a Ford Bronco. Instead, you see him driving a you-wouldn't-look-at-it-twice hybrid. Now, I am not commenting on whether Gary's views about cars are right or whether the environmentalists are right. I'm not commenting on that. There will be a variety of opinions here and it's totally irrelevant to this illustration. It's not the point. The point is this. Do you give up your rights if they get in the way of the gospel? Or do you live like our society, which is all, it's my right. And life is all about my freedoms to make my choices, to have this and to experience that. Is your attitude one of the Apostle Paul's? Yes, it's my right, but I'm going to give it up because the gospel matters more. Or is it our society? But I'll miss out and I won't get this chance again. Driving a Ford Bronco or getting paid for gospel work might not be an issue or of relevance to you at all. But this is an issue for all of us. Do you insist on your rights and your free choices? Or will you let go of them for the sake of the gospel? Now, don't forget, chapter 9 is a double-barreled shotgun. Do you remember that? It's a double-barreled shotgun. Paul is at the same time as saying, look at my example. Come on, Corinthians, give up your rights for the gospel. 
he is also at the same time defending his authority as an apostle because they weren't listening to him because they didn't think he was a decent apostle. And he's saying, yes, I may not have insisted on pay, but I still am a proper apostle. And God has put it in this in his word to teach us about the relationship between a church and gospel workers. Verses 3 to 14 clearly teach that in the words of verse 14, those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Now, you might, as you might realise, it's a bit embarrassing for me saying this because I'm the only one here. Well, actually, I'm not quite, but I'm, I'm the only one within Hollywell who is paid to preach the gospel. And I'm not raising this point because I want a pay rise and I think I'm getting a bad deal. Not at all. Thankful to have a church that has got verses 3 to 14 right. We need churches that are ready to support gospel workers. But we also need gospel workers who aren't in it for the money. We need verse 16 people. Do you remember verse 16? I am compelled to preach the gospel. We should be praying for God to raise up verse 16 people. Now, I'm thankful we've got some people here who are considering whether they should be giving themselves to preaching and teaching. Consider this. Do you feel compelled to preach the gospel? Not because you like preaching. Not because you can think you think you can speak to a group of people. Not because it has status in the church. Not because you're discontented with your job and wondering what to do. But because the people around you need the gospel. Because the Lord Jesus ought to be honoured. Because his good news ought to be spread to everyone. When I was considering if I should leave teaching and give myself completely to gospel work, I read the biography of a missionary. can't even remember who it was. But I remember a sentence that went something like this. It said, the gospel was like a fire in his bones. It was burning with it, and it had to get out. I haven't quite quoted that rightly, because it was many years ago I read it, but that stuck in my mind. That's what we should be like. Let's move on to the second section. The sections are getting shorter as we go along. Verses 19 to 23. Fit in with others if it will help the gospel. Verses 19 to 23. Fit in with others if it will help the gospel. The Corinthians had another reason to look down on Paul and it went like this. He's a man pleaser. He writes impressive letters about the Jewish rituals have all gone. Now Jesus has come. And then when the Jews turn up, we notice he's engaging in Passover with them. And he's eating kosher food. And he even once, we're told, shaved his head as part of a Jewish ritual about taking an oath. How does that square with his letters about the Jewish rituals have ended? And then when he's with Gentiles, well, he's eating pork. And even... Sometimes pork that may have been dedicated at a temple. He just goes with whatever way the wind is blowing, this man. He's a please everyone man. He can't be a decent apostle. And so Paul in verses 19 to 23 defends himself. And he basically says, yes, that is me. I will go with the way the wind is blowing. I'll fit in with others if it will help the gospel. That's the big if. 
if it will help the gospel. When I'm mixing with the Jews, I'll be like them. When I'm mixing with the Gentiles, I'll be like them. When I'm with a weak Christian whose conscience gets all uptight about trivialities, I'll go along with him. Verse 22, I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. Now, do you see what he's teaching us? The the principle really is very clear and simple. Fit in with others if it will help the gospel. That's the big if. If it will help the gospel. Now, I listened to a preacher that I like on this, a preacher uh, that I highly respect, and he gave a couple of examples. I'll give you his examples. He said if he moved to Lancashire to fit in with the people there so he could get to know them, so he had an opportunity to tell the gospel, and so he didn't have any barriers getting in the way of the gospel, he would eat black pudding. Even though he thinks black pudding is the most disgusting thing imaginable. If he was round their house visiting them and they gave him black pudding, he would eat black pudding. He wouldn't want any offence to get in the way of the gospel. There's one example he gave. Here's another example he gave. He said his church has missionaries in Thailand. And he said, I presume he's got this right, he's a knowledgeable man, he said, in Thailand, if your toes are pointing towards someone, that is a big insult. It'd be very hard in this room, wouldn't it, not to be insulting people. And anyway, he said, your toes must not be pointing towards someone. So they're missionaries in Thailand. However silly they might think that is, however much they might think that is ridiculous, that is just stupid. He said, they've got to be careful when they're visiting someone, not to make sure, to make sure that their toes are not pointing towards them. Because you try to fit in with people and not present any barrier to the gospel. Now, there's two valid examples of fit in if it will help the gospel. But I've purposely given his examples, both because they're valid, but also because they're a bit safe. seems to me they're a bit safe, those examples. What do I mean? Well, no one will think you're bad for doing them. I doubt any Christian will think that you're being a bad Christian for eating black pudding. Nobody's going to look down on you because you've got your feet like this so that you don't point your toes at them. Paul's examples were less safe and easy. His examples were ones that actually caused him trouble and were difficult to think through and get right. And they caused Christians to whisper about him behind his back and maybe also to his face because he seems to know about it. Because some thought he was bad because he looks like he's going back to Judaism. And others thought he's bad because look at him, he's eating pork and he's doing all sorts of things that, that go against Old Testament law, so they thought. But he'd do them anyway for the sake of bringing the gospel to non-Christians. Sometimes our answers to this have to be not very safe and quite difficult to think through. That makes it difficult for me to think of an example. Here's an attempt. Here's an attempt. Imagine we had an influx of Arab Muslims to this area. Large number of Arab Muslims living in the area. And quite a few were saved. And those Arabs who had been Muslims and are now Christians and now meeting with us at Hollywell, they had the opportunity to bring in other Arab Muslims to hear the gospel, a gospel events that we put on here. Now, would we allow the decor of the church to be more Eastern? And would we 
sing praises to God in an Arabian style of music? And would we start wearing Muslim clothes and suggest to the women of the church it would be a good idea to wear a hijab? So that it didn't appear we're trying to get those Arabians into a Western. You've got to become Westerners. We want to get as many barriers to the gospel out of the way as we can because preserving our English culture matters zero compared with bringing the gospel to people. Now, that would be an interesting debate, wouldn't it? And we could debate things like, how might that affect bringing the gospel to English people who come in and wonder, have they wandered into a mosque? So there's a legitimate debate there. But ask yourself, do you react to my example on the basis of your choices and what you're comfortable with? And wanting to preserve our church to be done our way. And, well, it's our church in England, so they ought to fit in with us, not us fit in with them. Do we expect others to move in our direction rather than us move in their direction? And I'm sure you can see that the example could be adjusted for all sorts of other cultures, not just Arabian Muslims and including subcultures within the UK. Have a think how you're reacting to it. Is it about principle, or is it about comfort? Now, there are limits to how far we should move in other people's direction. There are limits. What are the limits? The limit is, is it sinful? Have a look at verse 21. Verse 21, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. Paul says to the Gentiles who don't know God's law, I became like them, except I am, I am keeping Christ's law still. So, Paul cannot say to the drunkard, I became a drunkard, so they feel at ease with me. No. Notice. There is a limit to how far we'll move, and the limit is very simple. Is it sinful? Verse 22, I have become all things to all men, has been used by people as an excuse for the sins they just wanted to do anyway. You cannot use this principle for going along with unbelievers to watch a film that will provoke you to lust and fill your mind with foul language. You can't say, but I'm going along with them. I don't want to present a barrier to the gospel. I want to get alongside them. No. That isn't fitting in to help the gospel. That's digging a hole in the road in the way of the gospel. Because your example is a contradiction of the gospel, which is the gospel of salvation from sin, not salvation to carry on playing with sin. Third section of the chapter, verse 24 to 27. Have the discipline of an athlete in the work of the gospel. Have the discipline of an athlete in the work of the gospel. Now, I'm going to be very brief on this and probably come back to it next time because verse 24 to 27 act as both the end of chapter 9 and an introduction to chapter 10. So I think we'll need to come back to them when we get into chapter 10. But just very briefly, let, let's, let me point out how they're relevant to chapter 9. You see, what I've just described and what God has put in chapter 9 is is difficult to do. It means denying yourself. 
It means going without things you'd like to have. And things that are not sinful, but going without them still. It means a pattern of life that is careful, not just an occasional burst of enthusiasm. That's difficult. Who would lead such a life of self-denial, of careful, consistent, going without some things? Well, the Corinthians knew well who would go without such a life, who would lead such a life. Because every two years, right on their doorstep, were the Isthmian Games. That was the second most important athletics event in the ancient world, second only to the obvious one, the Olympics. And it was right within walking distance of Corinth. It massively affected their town, brought them a lot of money. So they knew full well about athletes. And they knew, as Paul says in verse 24 onwards, throughout the year, athletes would train strictly. Not just in the week before the games, throughout the year. And it would affect what they eat. And while other people are eating cream buns, I don't know if ancient Greeks had cream buns and other things, and it was lawful to do it, and there's no law against it, they would deny themselves. They'd live a strict life, and they would be careful, and they would they would have to be consistent, and not just have a burst of enthusiasm in the week before the games. Why would they do that? Verse, I think it's 25, is it, says, why they would do it? For a crown. A crown made of pine needles. And even pine needles eventually fall off and rot. They do all that. They would live that self-denying, difficult life for a crown made of pine needles that will pass away. Well, says Paul in verse 25, in that case, can't we do it for a crown that will last forever? Can't we put ourselves out, deny our rights, do things that we find uncomfortable, but we're doing them for the sake of the gospel, for a crown that will last forever. What is that crown that will last forever? Well, there's more than one answer in the New Testament. There are various references to crowns, but I'll tell you a couple of verses that are significant to this. Verse 2, chapter 9, verse 2. Paul says, you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Children, do you know what a seal is? It isn't a mammal that swims in the sea, not this sort of seal. It was a wax thing on a letter that showed this comes from the king or this comes from Lord so-and-so. Paul's saying the Corinthians, are they have assigned the seal. I'm a real apostle. Why? Paul's gospel-driven choices had resulted in him going to Corinth and telling them the gospel and they came to faith. And that's his seal of apostleship. It's his sign. It's his glory. There's something very similar said about another group of, of believers. I'll read to you. It's a different group of believers. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says something very similar. They are his sign, his seal, but he puts it like this. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 19. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes. Is it not you? That's amazing, isn't it? He says the crown he will glory in when Jesus returns is the Thessalonians. Paul made gospel-driven choices that resulted in he travelled to Thessalonica. 
And he preached the gospel and the people there turned from idols to serve the living and true God and wait for his son from heaven. That's how Paul puts it. And Paul says when his son, God's son, comes from heaven, the Thessalonians are going to be like a crown of glory to thee. Paul says when Jesus returns, any people who've turned to Jesus through his and our lives, they'll be like a crown of glory to us. Imagine this. Imagine around the throne of Jesus when you're there one day. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus and you're around the throne of glory one day, you see someone you tried to get alongside. Someone who was quite awkward and rather different from you. But you tried to go along with that and you tried to make sure that nothing got in the way of the gospel and made it a barrier to them. Nothing dug a hole in the road of the gospel. Nothing hindered them from considering Jesus as saviour. And now you see them there around the throne of Jesus. Wow, that would be a crowning glory that will last forever. And so verses 24 to 27, Paul says, come on, if if an athlete can do it for a pine needle crown, can't we do it for that crown of glory? So we've gone through chapter nine rather quickly. It's part of three chapters, eight, nine and ten, that go together. And that section of three ends actually in chapter 11, verse 1. Here's the last thing this evening. Have a look how it all ends, chapter 11, verse 1. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That's why Paul wrote chapter 9. He's saying, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. You see, chapter 9 has still been on the big theme of the letter. The big theme of the letter is the cross isn't just to be believed. It's to be lived. The Corinthians needed to see glory wasn't all those things their society valued. No, glory is following the cross-shaped life of Jesus. What glory there is. Why Jesus went to the cross. He gave up his rights for our sake. He could have grasped on and said, no, this throne is my right and being up here in heaven with the angels is my right. But he didn't grasp on. No, he made himself nothing. He didn't stand up for his right to a fair trial. No, he gave up that right so we could stand safely in God's trial of us. He came into a manger so that shepherds could meet him. And he chose despised fishermen as his apostles, so working people could meet him. And he went to meals with Pharisees who despised him, so that religious hypocrites could meet him. And he aligned himself with the meanest tax collector in town, so the greedy collaborators could meet him. And far more than the Apostle Paul, he had that inner compulsion, not just to preach the gospel, but to go to the cross so there would be a gospel. You see, 1 Corinthians 9, it's still all about Jesus. And it's still all about following him and a cross-shaped life and that sees beauty and glory in this way of living. It's all about being like Christ. 
But it doesn't allow us just to quote cliches. Oh, we so easily say, don't we, about Christ-likeness. No, chapter 9 hasn't left it as a vague cliche. It's shown us practical, specific and challenging ways to take up our cross and follow Jesus.